Thank you, Adam. Musicians, Regen, the Joyful Noise Choir. Um, you know, when you add all of these choirs, we have the superstars, we have the adult choir. You've heard from Joyful Noise and Regen tonight. I think we've got the best choirs uh, in, in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, we are blessed. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Adam, you're very talented, but you don't have to be real talented to lead those choirs. What you do? <laughs> yeah. No, you are, you, you do an amazing job with them, and, and it, it, we get to, you know, eat that fruit every week, and just thank you so much for um, being a steward of your position so faithfully. Well, we're in Genesis 1 tonight, and again... We're kind of doing a, a helicopter hovering in Genesis 1 because it's so important. We're not going to stay in Genesis forever. Uh, but Genesis 1, if there is a chapter under attack in our culture, it's Genesis chapter 1. And so we, we need to, you know, pace ourselves a little bit. We need to immerse ourselves in Genesis 1. And then once you get past the creation account, we will pick up the speed just a bit. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to, to bless our evening. He's already blessed it through song and scripture reading and prayer. Now ask him to bless it through preaching of the word. Lord, thank you uh, for your mercy and grace that we know supremely in the Son of God, by the Spirit of God. Father, we pray tonight you would incline our hearts towards your word. You would open our eyes to behold the wondrous things found in your word. You would not unite our hearts to fear your name. And Lord, that you would satisfy us this evening with your loving kindness that we know in the Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Bedford Clapperton Pym. Unique name. Uh, but he was a British naval officer and a known authority on Central America. And he wrote of the Panama Canal Railroad that was constructed in the mid-19th century. He said, I've seen the greatest engineering works of the day, but I must confess that when passing backwards and forwards on the Panama Railway, standing on the engine to obtain a good view, I have never been more struck than with the evidence of the wonderful skill, endurance, and perseverance which must have been exercised in its construction. So construction of this railway, this railroad, began in 1850, and they concluded it in 1855, and it was the first ocean-to-ocean -ocean railroad. Now, the marvel of the, that engineering feat is increased when you realize that this railroad had to be cut through a rainforest. David McCullough, who is the historian, we read about this from his book, Comrades, he reminds us of the mid-19th century realities that made railroad survey alone uh, almost inconceivable. Here's what he says. No aerial photography didn't exist. No modern medicines. No insect repellent. No bulldozers. No chainsaws. No canned goods. No reliable map. It's no surprise that mile for mile, 
the Panama Railroad appears to have cost more in dollars in human life than any railroad ever built. In other words, Officer Pym was right to marvel. Uh, connecting the Atlantic and the Pacific by rail required a level of skill and perseverance that almost seems miraculous. As I said last week, everything in the creation is in some way a, a sign glory of the great, greater glory that we see in the person and the work of our God. Uh, and this is an instant of God's image bearers, an example of God's image bearers imaging their God in creating in a remarkable way that this railroad against all odds. But keep in mind, nothing was done to build that radio, uh, railroad ex nihilo, out of nothing. They were working with pre-existing material. Not so God's creation. We saw that last week. As we saw, God created the heavens and the earth ex nihilo, out of nothing. As Hebrews 11 tells us, the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. And now tonight, starting in verse 3, we're going to be given more information as to that event of creation. Now, the six days of creation, and I believe that we have no reason uh, except to take this account straightforwardly. And historically, the church has done that. Um, there have been great minds in church history have seen this as a straightforward account. Um, so these six days of creation are perfectly divided so that the first three days, and we're, that's what we're going to look at tonight, the first three days, describe the forming of the earth, and the last three days describe the feeling of what God has formed. And so this is a direct echo and, and remedy to the opening statement that the earth was without form and void. This is remedied by the first three days where he forms what was without form. And on verses, or days four to six, he feels what he has formed. Um, in other words, the first three days change the barren earth into a land that produces vegetation. And the final three days fill that empty terrain with life. So days one to three describe the domains being created, and the second three days, days four to six, portray the creation of the rulers of, that, of those domains. So let's look at the first day of creation, which is verses three to five. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, the first step in remedying the, the dark earth, we saw that uh, in verse 2, darkness was over the face of the earth, was God's command here, let there be light. Have you ever heard of the language of creation by divine fiat? I think we need to be familiar with these terms, divine fiat. It comes from the Latin word fiat, 
And the words in the, the Latin translation of the, of the book of Genesis um, is fiat lux, let there be light. That's where we get the language of divine fiat. God said light into being. God spoke light into being. And what does that do? It stresses the power of God. Our God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. He's in control. By eight commands we're going to see in Genesis 1, God spoke reality into being. By eight words, God spoke the entire universe. But here's the question. There's light. But what is this light? The sun has not and won't be produced or created until day four. Now that just sends people in a tizzy. How can there be light without the sun? Clearly there's an error in the Bible. Not so fast. Something clearly theological is being communicated here. It implies that the light has God as its source. Psalm 104, for instance, where the Creator is depicted as wrapped in light as a garment. Um, John Calvin writes of this. He says, It did not happen by chance or accident that light preceded the sun and the moon. To nothing are we more prone than to bind God's power to those instruments whose agency He employs. That's why there has been historically a lot of sun and moon worship. The sun and moon supply us with light, and according to our notions, we so restrict this power to them that if they were taken away from the world, we would regard it as impossible for any light to remain. Therefore, the Lord bears witness by the very order of creation that he holds the light in his hand and without sun or moon can lavish it upon us. That's an important word for us all. God uses created means, but he is not dependent on created means. He alone is sovereign and all-powerful. Well, these verses also, and I think we'll see this in day four, the next time we gather in Genesis... Uh, it serves as kind of an, a polemic, a, an argument, an exposing of, of the pagan idea that the sun and the moon were worthy of worship. Um, scripture is going to describe the sun and the moon without even naming them as the greater light and the lesser light. And then it'll throw in and the stars. Moses is making clear to us they are not divine. There's only one who's divine. They are created and they are ordered by this creator, God. God does not need them to bring light. Notice in verse 4. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. There's not even the sun yet. Love that. Another basic truth here that I think we need to ponder is you see over and over in Genesis, really you see it throughout 
the Torah, Genesis to Deuteronomy, God saw. God saw. It's not an accident that throughout Genesis and throughout Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, the activity of God seeing is at the center of Moses' conception of God. In fact, the first name given to God by a human. Of course, I believe that name was given by the Spirit is Hagar, who, who names God in Genesis 16, 13, El Roy, the God who sees me. Isn't that beautiful? The God who sees me. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 115, among other places, Psalm 115, verse 5, understands that God's seeing us and seeing what he's made is one of the essential Uh, essential attributes that distinguishes him from the false gods. Uh, The psalmist says, they they have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They are false gods. But we have a God who sees. Whatever situation you're in tonight, he is El Roy, the God who sees me. Now, that's good news for those of us who are his. (laughs) It's good news because we are under his fatherly discipline and care. He's all in. It is not good news for those who resist him. Um, Now, this term good, the first time we see it is right here uh, in this passage. And God saw... Uh, that it, the light was good. We're going to see it seven times in this chapter. I think that's intentional. I think that number seven is being communicated, that the creation in, in its fullness is perfect. It, it is good. What does it mean that it's good? Well, it is good in that it is beneficial for his image bearers. What God creates is good because it benefits his image bearers. It gives them the capacity to flourish the way God designed them to flourish as his image bearers. For the first three days, so light shines from another source other than the sun, but it is good. In fact, that goodness of this light points us to an even greater goodness in the new heavens and the new earth. Because in Revelation 22, uh, verse 5, um, we see that not only does the Bible begin with light without the sun, it ends with light without the sun. Listen to Revelation 22. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And I think that really helps us interpret uh, this first day of creation. We are learning from the very beginning that the Lord God is our light, ultimately. And that the sun, uh, used by God, is just a sign glory. It points beyond itself. It has an index finger saying, don't look at me. You look at the one who created me. So, now... 
this day one alone uh, teaches us a great deal. It teaches us that all objects in the creation are bound by the Word of God. In fact, we'll learn that even in new creation, all things are bound by the Word of God. God brings about new creation by His Word. Uh, think about your own salvation, where it says you were saved not by, by the imperishable seed, or the perishable seed, you were saved by the imperishable and enduring Word of God. So God does all things in creation by His Word. He does all things in new creation by His Word. But day one alone refutes much of the false teaching that we here today. Think about this. Day one alone denies and refutes atheism. Now, I don't believe there's as many atheists as they're claimed to be. Um, because I think that what the scripture teaches us is that all of us as image bearers who have the law of God written on our hearts, we've been hardwired for God. We've been hardwired for transcendence. That's why you don't have to really convince a kid about Santa Claus. They've been hardwired for, for a transcendent being, all right? And so for a person to be a true blue atheist, you have to sin there to get there. You have to sin your way to get to the point of atheism. So day one alone refutes atheism. For the one God created everything. It's not here by some kind of arbitrary random process. Secondly, day one alone denies polytheism. Now, what do we mean by polytheism? Many gods. This one God created everything. A third uh, false teaching that day one refutes is pantheism. That you see in Hinduism, for instance. The belief that a God is in all things and in all people. Day one alone teaches us that the Creator God is transcendent. He is distinct from His creation. Now, we learn in time He's imminent as well. That He is present with us, uh, especially his, his people in a covenantal way. But He is transcendent. Fourth, day one alone refutes humanism. Because God and not us is on the throne of the universe. I don't get to set the rules. I'm not in control. Fifth, it refutes macroevolution. Because we did not develop, day one teaches us, we did not develop from primordial soup, but we were specially created by the one God. Now, this chapter is so, so very vital and foundational for us. We shouldn't be surprised that it's the most assaulted chapter in our Bibles. I mean, you have to be almost, to believe in macroevolution. Some of the brightest people in the world believe that while recognizing there's massive, massive holes in that theory. But they don't like the, the thought of the alternative. So day one points us beyond itself to the creator. It also points itself to the creation of the, crea uh, the Christian. That is, 
God's breaking into the darkness of our lives, I think, is pointed at in Genesis 1. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 4? He says, but God said, who, uh, who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So uh, this creation account points beyond itself to our redemption. Well, that brings us to the second day of creation, verses 6 to 8. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Actually, that's uh, chapter 2. I'm sorry. thought that was crazy. And God said, Let there be an expanse. Now, there's been a whole lot of ink spilled on this expanse. Um, we'll speak about that in just a moment. But let there be an expanse in the midst of of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters and so this expanse is used for something is which is spread out like a a covering there's some kind of covering and and so let it separate the waters from the waters in other words it, it creates a boundary giving structure to the upper and the lower waters again we're not exactly sure uh, what this means, but evidently there was no separation before uh, day two. And he separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. Now that's not his throne, that's, the, that's what we see in the skies empirically. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And so this expanse is the atmosphere, evidently, that distinguishes uh, the surface waters of the earth, the waters below, and the atmospheric waters above, uh, the waters above. And so uh, it's interesting here that we're seeing separation in all of these days. And so this expanse describes uh, both the place in which the, uh, the luminaries, the, the, the sun, the moon, the stars, uh, would be set, and the sky, where the birds will be observed, where they will fly. We'll read about those in subsequent days. And heaven here is the visible skies, all right? Whereas God's abode, when we think about heaven, we think about God's abode, it's the heavens above where the, uh, the court convenes, but it cannot be seen. But this is referring to the heavens as we see them. Now, the theological significance of God's creation of the skies, again, is the clarification that God alone rules the powers of the heavens, whereas especially in Babylonian and, and Egyptian religion, it was not the one and true and living God who did that. Again, Moses is writing to take on um, these pagan worldviews. A lot of people think that he's borrowed from these worldviews, and actually all of these worldviews have some semblance of the truth. Um, false teaching always has some semblance of the truth, and, and so he, he's not deriving his theology from these pagan religions. He is taking on these pagan religions with the truth of God's Word. That brings us to the third day of creation, the final one we'll look at tonight. Verses 9 
to 13. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. I love that. When God speaks, the appropriate line after that is, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth, and it was so. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that on day three we see life. That motif of, of, of on the third day, new life, it is pervasive in the Bible. All right? We'll come back to that at the end. But we see life for the first time on day three. This is very important. But also we see here the first occurrence of the word seed. Um, which most often has this idea, metaphorically, of offspring. And so here we're told that he gives the earth power to reproduce. Now note in verse 11, up to this point, all creation has been special creation. Uh, God himself immediately brought it into being, and now he starts to use means, all right? He, he's going to use the earth itself to bring about other things. Now, that's not in any way to deny the supernatural nature of that, but he's using means like trees and plants. But even here, uh, the earth's ability to produce things comes from God. Now, note this important phrase that you see over and over, according to its kind. That's verse 11. Verse 12, according to the, its kind. That phrase is repeated 10 times in Genesis. Could that phrase be more important than in today's climate? Uh, what it does is it shows the limitations of variation in God's creation. A, a plant can only bring something of its own kind. You don't plant a peach tree and produce an oak tree. It can only produce something of its own kind. It only has the capacity to function on the basis of the genetic code that God has given it. So this eliminates any possibility of macroevolution. It just absolutely eliminates it because living organisms can only reproduce after its own kind. To say that all living things come from a common ancestry is absolutely refuted in Genesis chapter 1. Before he died in 2002, maybe you're aware of the, the paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould. He was in a very well-known respected scientist at Harvard. He had an important chair there. And he held to evolution because he didn't like the alternative. Uh, the alternative means um, he demands my life. All right? But he saw the problems 
And, and he said, and he wrote a great deal about this, he acknowledged there's little, no evidence of evolution occurring through successive tiny changes over generation after generation. He was honest enough to admit that. Here's what he said. The absence of fossil evidence for intermediary stages between major transitions in organic design, indeed, our inability, even in our imagination, to construct functional intermediates in many cases has been a persistent and nagging problem for gradualistic accounts of evolution. You see what he's saying? He is honest enough. Now, this guy's writing from Harvard. This must have took some courage on his part. He's saying there's no transitional life forms. <laughs> they're just not present. You can talk about them, but they're just not present. He says that is a persistent and nagging problem. So here was his argument. He wrote it out in 1972. It's remarkable. Punctuated equilibrium. Now, what does he mean by that? It's, I don't think, hard to understand. By punctuated equilibrium, Gould means that all species remain constant through their existence. In other words, equilibrium. With new species appearing suddenly. He knew there's no transitional life forms. And so an ape 2,000 years ago is an ape today. But somehow, new species just appear suddenly. And that's where he gets that term, punctuated equilibrium. Well, if I'm reading him correctly, that almost sounds like ex nihilo without God. I prefer Moses writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, the, the father of modern creation science, Henry Morris, is correct when he writes, implanted in each created organism was a seed. Now that was day three, right? Was a seed program to enable the continuing replication of that same organism. The modern understanding of the extreme complexities of the so-called DNA molecule and the genetic code contained in it has reinforced the biblical teaching of the stability of kinds. Kinds beget kinds is what he's saying. Each type of organism has its own unique structure of the DNA and can only specify the reproduction of the same kind. That's science. Gould even recognized that. There is a tremendous amount of variational potential within each kind, facilitating the generation of distinct individuals and even of many varieties within the kind, but nevertheless precluding the evolution of new kinds. Of course, that's not to deny microevolution, which is essentially the phenomenon that species adapt to its environment, correct? That's uncontroversial. Everyone recognizes that. But what we're talking about here is macroevolution, this thesis that species evolve into other species, 
which is insane. And that all species share a common ancestry. That's patently unbiblical. Well, notice in verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind. So if you planted an apple tree, guess what you're going to reap? You reap apple trees according to their kind. And trees bearing fruit in which is their seed. Isn't that remarkable? Long before evolution was even a thing, God's wisdom is prevailing, preparing us. Thousands of years earlier, preparing us to take on the theory of evolution. Each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And so on day one, it says God saw the light was good. And now again on day three. And so all through Genesis 1, God is presented to us as the one who both knows what is good for us and is committed to providing for that good. He provides that good for his image bearers. And so what Moses is doing, I believe, he in so emphasizing the goodness of God's creation, he's preparing us for the cosmic tragedy of Genesis chapter 3. Now it's in the light of understanding uh, of God is the one who, who is able to discern good from evil and who is committed on providing us with the good that Adam's rebellious attempt to discern the knowledge of good and evil is seen for the foolishness that it is. Indeed, when we read in Genesis 1 of God as the provider of all that is good and beneficial, we can't help but see that Moses is anticipating um, the, the hollowness of the first couple's rebellion. The, the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good. She saw. I mean, I think that wording is intentional. God saw all things that was good. The woman saw that the forbidden tree was good. And so... I think that is intentional. God sees the good in chapter 1, and the woman sees the forbidden tree as good in chapter 3. And it drives home to us that at the root of rebellion is humankind's belief that God is not good. He's holding out on us. He needs supplementing. How many students do we meet on the campus when we're out evangelizing? who were raised in Christian homes. I met one Thursday night. He was raised in a very godly home. And he was out and could barely walk. And I told him, I said, you know what your problem is? When you heard about the goodness of God growing up in your church, you didn't believe it. You believed that he was holding out. And so you can't flourish unless... You help him out. Okay? That is the problem. But that takes us all the way back to Genesis. Indeed, that is the human condition. And as Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament will reveal, we will need a Messiah who does not 
disbelieve that. One who knows that his father is good. So when that the evil one tempts him to turn the, the stone into bread, he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. Indeed, we have that Messiah, but I also think it's interesting uh, that we have this third day mo motif that's preparing us for this Messiah. I want you to think about this. Uh, this third day motif is found throughout. On the third day of creation, dry land emerged and plants spring from it. That is our first glimpse of life. It happens on day three. Uh, Adam and, or Abraham and Isaac, they arrive at Mount Moriah on the third day. And it was on the third day that Isaac is delivered from death by the goat caught in the thicket. At Sinai, the Lord came down on the mountain on the third day to cut a covenant with Israel. <clears throat> Hosea sees a day. I love this passage, this prophecy in Hosea 6. Um, when the people of God would be restored. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, Hosea 6, 2, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days and three nights and he experienced his own little foreshadowing of the resurrection. In all of these texts, a kind of transition from death to life occurred. Third day, a transition to new life. It'll come through the one in whom all things were made and for whom they were made. Colossians 1.16. The one who will come, who will resist the temptation of the devil, who tempts us to believe God is not good, he is holding out. He will know that God is good for us because we fail to believe that in our sin. And this one who, who, who is sustained in that goodness will go to the cross and our failure to believe in the goodness of God our judgment for that will pour out on him. And on the third day, we will have new life in this one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. The book of Genesis is preparing us for the Messiah. And I would submit that in a crowd this large tonight, uh, there's someone here that needs to know this Messiah. So as our musicians come forward, we'll have um, pastors at the at the end of the aisle. Genesis 1 doesn't stand alone. Genesis 1 is preparing us for new creation. Did God know that the fall was going to happen when he created all things good? Of course he did. But in that pronouncement of judgment in Genesis 3, he says a seed, all right? And we read first about the seed in day 3. A seed from the woman will come. And this seed will crush the serpent's head. And for those who repent of their sins and trust in that seed, we have new life. That is the promise for every person here tonight. And we'd love to talk to you about that. If you have questions about the gospel, if you would like to, to pray with us about uh, coming to Christ in repentance and faith, we would love to speak to you. But let's stand and sing, Won't You Come?
Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time, or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.